Well, good morning. I really love the theme that Dale's brought through, that we do have a good, good father. In the joys and the sadness of life, God is unchanging and he is good. And that's so reassuring as we gather together as his people today around his word. You know, we do live in a unique time of history where we have a superabundance of food of every description. Uh, There's such an amazing variety of cuisines in the world today. But that hasn't always been the case. It's actually a relatively recent phenomenon for most people. Uh, In years gone by, diets were far more simpler than they are today. For many poor workers and farmers, the most basic foodstuff was bread. One reason why the French Revolution happened was because the poor people of Paris simply couldn't afford the bread to keep their families alive. And this is why bread has often been called the staff of life for thousands of years. It's one of the most basic foods necessary to sustain bread. All you need is some wheat and some water and voila, you have bread, a very simple form of bread. Now, of course, these days we have a fantastic array of breads to choose from. You can just see some of the selections there, and I had to get some pastries in as well. I do apologise to those of you who are gluten-free or enjoying a low-carbohydrate diet, but isn't it fantastic that we have such a wide array of food to choose from? And so my question is this morning, are we feeling hungry yet? Did you have your breakfast? Are you ready for morning tea? Is lunch seem too far away? But hunger is a metaphor also for the deepest longings of our hearts. The hunger that we have is not just for bread, as scrumptious as it looks. We all hunger for something that gives meaning to our lives. We long to find fulfilment in so many different things. We are restless, we are wandering, searching out that one thing that will give our lives meaning and purpose. What do you hunger for? Are you hungry for something that truly satisfies? And today, we want to find out what will truly satisfy this hunger that we all have deep down inside of us. We're continuing our series today, God in our midst. We're looking at how the living God, the ruler of the universe, chose to live in the midst of his people, Israel. We've been going through the book of Exodus, which is an extraordinary account of how God rescued the Israelites. They were living in misery, in slavery in Egypt. And God himself led them out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where the Lord revealed himself in an awesome display of fire and thunder and smoke. You know, there was nothing special about Israel that God would choose them. It was all of grace. God took the initiative. He made his promise to Abraham. He continued that covenant promise to Isaac. And he kept his promises to Jacob. And we know that today God is unchanging. He will keep his promises. So here we are. We've got an artist's description of what it was like at Mount Sinai. In an extraordinary display of the power and the might and the glory of the living God, it's here at Mount Sinai that the Lord establishes his covenant 
relationship with Israel. We know the story. We've learned it in Sunday school, hopefully. Moses goes up to the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments. He receives all these instructions on how Israel can live as God's people. And the Lord, Yahweh, is giving crystal clear instructions on how he was to be worshipped. Astonishingly, the all-powerful God of the universe would choose to live among his people. We know that when all Israel saw what was going on up in Mount Sinai, they were terrified. They didn't want to come too close to such holiness and purity and majesty and power. They knew, they just knew deep down, they weren't worthy. And so this is why there are such clear instructions on how the tabernacle was to be built. The tabernacle was the one place on earth where the Lord would live among his people. It was the place where he was to be worshipped with reverence and awe by the priests. The priests who represented God's people. And so essentially the tabernacle was a huge structural tent. It was much more grand than a tent, but it had a tent-like covering over it. It had a large fence all around it to keep the people from wandering through. There's a bird's eye view of the different things that we've been looking at. Inside the compound was a huge altar for burnt offerings, as well as the bronze basin for washing. And this is where the people would come to the priest to make offerings to the Lord. We've looked at those two things in the last couple of weeks. And the reason why we're taking this time to examine key aspects of the tabernacle is because what we have here in the Old Testament is a shadow. It's a shadow looking forward to its fulfilment that is seen in Jesus in the New Testament. Today we're going to be actually going inside the tabernacle. You can see a cutaway diagram of an artist's impression. I don't know how accurate it is, but it seems like they've done a pretty good job. Inside, um, the priest could only go inside the tabernacle. They had to be set apart. They had to be consecrated. They had to be holy to come into God's presence. And so that first larger room that you can see there was the holy place. Beautiful. Gold everywhere. According to the Bible, there was over a ton, over 1,000 kilograms of pure gold, covering the walls, covering all the objects in this very, very holy place, awe-inspiring. And when the priests went inside, they would have just seen three objects there, a huge lamp on the left to give off light, a small table on the right with bread and pictures on it, and the altar of incense right in front of a very thick, beautiful curtain of blue, red and purple embroidered with cherubim. And so the Levite priests could come in here every day. They'd have to come in here to keep the olive oil topped up so the lamp would keep burning. They would come in to place incense on the altar, a sweet aroma to the Lord, and they would come in to place bread on the table. And that's what this passage today is all about. Now rereading through Exodus and Leviticus and other books of the first uh, five books of the Bible, the Torah, I'm very much struck by how precise God is in his instructions. 
And it's again the case with this table. Even though it's a very small table, very precise instructions. It had to be built firstly out of acacia wood, um, just a small rectangle of roughly three feet by one and a half feet in the old money, or about 90 centimetres by 45 centimetres. It was only two and a half feet high. Not really that impressive as far as furniture goes. It had a rim all around it, which was sensible, prevent anything falling off. And to make it easier, it had uh, rings attached through which two poles could be inserted so that they could carry it and transport it when they were wandering through the wilderness. Like everything else, it was covered with pure gold, which was very, very impressive indeed. And on the top of the table, we're told that there were different implements there, again, made of gold. And so we come to verse 30 that Matthew read out to us earlier, uh, where the Lord said to Moses, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. And that's the end of the passage. It's not really that remarkable, is it? But let's be a little bit inquisitive. Let's allow our curiosity to drive some of the questions that we might have of this particular text. What was the significance of this bread that they had to bring into the presence of God? Why was it called the bread of the presence? I think I just answered that. And why, why on earth did God need to have this bread set before him regularly? These are just the things that are ticking over in my mind. Thankfully, we get more instructions over in Leviticus. And so if we turn to Leviticus 24, we get some more clues about the significance of the bread of the presence in Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9. Here we find that there are 12 loaves of bread to be placed in two golden plates, six on each plate. And you can see that depicted there in the picture. They were round loaves made from fine flour. Uh, They didn't have any yeast in them. And these loaves, as you can probably guess, symbolised the 12 tribes of Israel before the very presence of the living God. Leviticus 24, verse 8. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. The covenant is such an important theme running all through scripture. The covenant was the relationship initiated by God to be with his chosen people. And in the cultural world of the Old Testament, a covenant was always sealed with a meal. And the foundation of every meal was bread. We even have carried over that idiom into today. If we want to get to know someone or to reconcile with someone, we say, let's break bread together. Let's break bread together. Come on over for a meal and let's catch up. So this bread had a very special significance for the covenant. We're told that the loaves in the temple had to be replaced every Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath began at sundown on Friday night went through to Saturday um, sundown as well. And so by now we realise this is not just some ridiculous, silly, frivolous exercise where some people sometimes leave out food for Santa. Uh, We don't. I hope I haven't pricked anyone's bubble there. 
But the bread of the presence had a very powerful and deeply symbolic meaning. This was bread representing Israel in the very presence of the Lord of the universe. When the Israelites left Egypt, after the Passover of the angel of the Lord, they went out in great haste. The Egyptians just want to get rid of them. Enough of the plagues. Go! Bread with them. Bread made without yeast. In dry conditions, unleavened bread can last a long time. It was very lightweight. It was easy to pack. It would sustain them on Israel's journey into the wilderness. And so later on, this very symbolic bread, which you can see depicted there, uh, the Lord makes it clear in Deuteronomy 16.3 that Israel were to eat unleavened bread for seven days as a reminder of their swift departure from Egypt. The feast of unleavened bread went for seven days and the Passover was the first day of that seven-day feast. Now, in contrast, bread or dough leavened with yeast, it tastes really yummy, I know, but it tends to spoil and corrupt much more quickly than unleavened bread. And in the Bible, leaven or yeast is sometimes used as a symbol, as a metaphor for sin. The sin that corrupts everything, the sin that spoils everything that it comes into contact with. We see this especially in the New Testament. I'll just take one example uh, where Jesus is warning against the leaven or the teaching of the Pharisees, which was leading people astray. We see that in Matthew 16. Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5, he likens leaven to malice. He likens yeast to evil. And the point is, we know that nothing impure can come into God's holy presence. So by placing these yeast-free loaves of bread in the presence of God in the tabernacle, the priests were remembering who God is. He is holy. And they're remembering what God had done. He is the saviour who brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, what's interesting is, what do you reckon would happen to the bread when it's replaced every week? Somehow, I don't think they just chuck it out. And we actually see in the Bible that the priests were instructed to eat that bread, that weak old unleavened bread. I like to just paint a picture. Can you just imagine the priests having their meal each Sabbath? They'd make sure the new bread was placed on the table and make sure all of the other duties were completed. The lamp had plenty of oil. There was incense on the altar. Everything's been completed. They can now enjoy the Sabbath. They would slowly chew on those 12 loaves of the presence. And as they were chewing that bread, they'd be reflecting of what it meant. It would be a weekly reminder of the Passover, what it cost for Israel to come out of Egypt. They would be reminded of the exodus, the supernatural rescue from Egypt. They would be thankful. They would be so thankful for the way that God had provided for his people 
on that journey out to Mount Sinai. They would give thanks for the manna in the wilderness, manna from heaven that sustained them eventually for 40 years. So this bread was a very powerful reminder of the covenant relationship between God and his people. No wonder the bread of the table of the presence was such an important component of the tabernacle. Now, these are all really good things to know. We've grown in our biblical knowledge today, and you might think, well, that's all, you know, vaguely interesting, I suppose. But really, what relevance does this have for us now in 2017? I'm really glad you've asked that question, if that's the question in your head. Because I'm going to answer it for you. And we're going to skim over very briefly 1,500 years of history up to Jesus' time. Now, when King Solomon, the son of King David, built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem almost 500 years later, he followed a pattern similar to that of the tabernacle, but obviously built in stone. Again, the table for the bread of the presence was there, the lampstand was there, the altar for the incense was there, and the 12 loaves of unleavened bread were placed there each Sabbath. We know, almost 400 years later, that the Babylonians completely destroyed that beautiful temple. A crisis in theology for God's people. Is God truly the living God? And we know that in God's grace and his providence, he returned the exiles after 70 years had taken place. They started to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel, but it was a shadow of its former glory. Some of the old-timers wept when they saw those foundations laid because they remember the glory and the magnificence of Solomon's temple, the dwelling place of God amongst his people. It was only later, it was only later in King Terod's time when he started to rebuild Zerubbabel's temple. We've got a picture of it up there, which is just a model. And it became a magnificent complex. It wasn't just the temple there in the centre of the picture. It was a huge complex all around it. It took so long to build. Uh, I'm not very good at maths. I'm a history teacher. Over 80 years to complete it. It was still being built while Jesus was ministering there. And it's so great, it's so beautiful, so magnificent that the Jews thought, surely when this is finished, God is going to rescue them from the cruel oppression of the Romans. But it's so interesting to read Jesus. We should never domesticate Jesus. We should always let Jesus' words speak to our soul. Jesus had some shocking things to say about the temple. In Matthew 24, Jesus declared that the day was coming when the temple would be completely destroyed. Impossible. But that actually happened in history in 70 AD. Not one stone left on another when the Romans conquered Jerusalem. Another time you might remember Jesus came to the temple. He was stunned by the marketplace it had become. People were selling animals. You could hear animals making all their noises, doing their business. People would come and swap their money for the temple tax. They'd buy an animal for the sacrifice. Jesus had a righteous anger. He drove them all down. And the Jews didn't like this one bit. By whose authority can you do this? They asked him for a sign to prove that he had the authority to call this place his father's house, a place of prayer for all nations. 
And Jesus responded in John chapter 2, verse 16, destroy this temple and in three days, three days, I will raise it up. Now already, this has been built for almost 50 years and the whole complex was still unfinished. Jesus is saying, I will raise this up in three days. What is going on? Thankfully, John explains in John 2.21 that the temple Jesus was talking about was his own body. And this is the key that unlocks everything. You see, the tabernacle and then the temple was where God originally dwelt with his people. This was the one place where people could worship the Lord God. Through the priests, people could make sacrifice for sin. They could maintain covenant. Jesus was saying there's a new, there's a better way for people to come into relationship with the living God in the person of Jesus. He was better than the tabernacle. Jesus is better than the temple. He was better than the priests. And his sacrifice was far better than the old sacrificial system. And the Pharisees, they completely missed the point. They had missed the point of what it meant for God to live in their midst. They were just going through the motions, doing the external stuff, but their hearts were far from God. And this leads to what I think is the most surprising thing Jesus said in relation to this whole theme. Now, just to set the scene, just imagine if someone promised you everything you ever wanted. Um, We'd be deeply sceptical, especially if it was a politician. I think there was another election in WA yesterday, and the feeling I'm getting is that people are deeply cynical about politics at the moment. You know, as Christians, we're called to pray for our leaders. We might not like them, but we need to pray for our leaders. But if someone came along and promised everything you wanted, I would be deeply sceptical. We're pretty cynical, and that's because of our experience. We've been let down time after time. But just imagine if someone not only promised you money or fame or pleasure, but everything that would give you meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life, would you believe them? You'd want to have a very good reason to believe them. It sounds too good to be true. And so this is the challenge that Jesus poses in John 6, verse 35. Listen to what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What is bread? Bread is the staff of life. Bread is the vital sustenance necessary to live. It's the source of life. And Jesus is saying he is the source of life. Not just for this life, but for everlasting life. Jesus goes on, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, by this stage, the Jews were completely scandalized by saying, I am the bread of life. Jesus was laying claim to be God himself. If we flick back to Exodus When the Lord appeared to Moses in the wilderness at the burning bush, Moses asked, Who? Who are you, God? 
And we know that the response in Exodus 3 is, I am who I am. I am who I am. Exodus 3.14. The Lord Jesus Christ invites us today to come to him, to believe in him, and we will never hunger and thirst for true meaning again. Well, Jesus didn't stop there. The whole chapter of John 6 is just so confronting and challenging and encouraging at the same time. But we're going to go on just to 6 6 verse 51, where Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. You can't get any clearer than that. He is the one from heaven. He is the living bread. He is the source of life. He is even better than the manna that God provided for Israel in the wilderness. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for my life, for the life of the world, is my flesh. Jesus was going to give his body, Jesus was going to give his blood for the life of the world, for all those who repent and put their trust in Jesus. But after this, many Jews left Jesus. They misunderstood him. They thought, my goodness, eating flesh, drinking blood, no way. Lot left. No, is through believing and trusting in Jesus that was the key to life. The thing is, the Old Testament always looked forward to the New Testament, to a new covenant that God would establish with his people. Just a little side note, um, you might know that the New Testament is written in common Greek, and the word New Testament can actually be translated New Covenant. New Covenant. And so 600 years before Jesus, in a very dark time of Judas' history, the prophet Jeremiah sets out this new covenant. Judas going into exile into Babylon. What hope is there? Well, listen to Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will make a new covenant. This is the covenant I will make in verse 33. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will forgive their sin and remember it no more. So we know that the answer always is Jesus. He was sent from heaven as the perfect once for all sacrifice to pay for our sins that we can be completely forgiven. No matter what we've done, complete forgiveness is freely offered to everyone today. What freedom, what liberty, what joy to know life everlasting relationship with the living God. No wonder Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This is why there's such powerful symbolism in the bread of the presence that we read about today. Now, we could pause there and go to the Lord's table, but if I can just beg your indulgence for one more key point, it gets even better, friends. And I'm just so excited about this, I've got to share this. At the fulfilment of all things, King Jesus is going to return and make things right. The Bible makes it clear it's going to be the greatest celebration of all time, a feast beyond comprehension. We get a hint of it in Isaiah in the Old Testament. We see the confirmation in Revelation 19. 
Let's just read Isaiah 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. I'm sure there'll be grape juice for us Baptists. Of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread across all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. I love that vision. I love that picture that we get. The idea of a a feast to celebrate life. And this is how we're going to celebrate when King Jesus appears. Let's turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 19, verse 6. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. And the bride, the church of Jesus, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven is revealed as a huge celebration of joy at our salvation. And this will be marked by a fabulously joyful feast. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for this day. Many years ago, many centuries ago, there was a very wise Christian named Augustine. And he said this about God. You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You have made us for yourself, Lord, And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The truth is, friends, is that we're all beggars. We are all desperate to find meaning in our lives. And in Jesus, we have found the living bread of life. It's free. It costs a lot, but it's free. And it truly satisfies. What are you hungry for today? Jesus is the bread of life everlasting. He invites us to come to him today, to believe in him and to trust him. And we have the opportunity to do that right now as we gather around the Lord's table. Can I please invite the communion stewards up now? as we prepare our hearts and mind to share in these symbols of the bread and the grape juice.
like the bread placed on the table in the tabernacle, this meal we're about to share is deeply symbolic. So any tiny amount of bread, we have gluten-free available. But this symbolizes Christ's body given for you. We have little thimblefuls of grape juice. This symbolizes Jesus' blood shed for us as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. By sharing in this meal together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're looking back. We're looking back to what it cost for us to be one into God's kingdom. We're looking back to Jesus' perfect life of obedience his sacrificial death and his physical resurrection from the dead, conquering death. But we're also using these symbols as we look forward. We look forward to the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, the consummation of all things, that wonderful wedding supper of the Lamb. Let me just share some very familiar words from Paul with us today. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. In a moment, we're going to pass around the bread and the juice. Please feed on the bread, thinking about what it symbolizes, thinking about what you're hungry for. And then after everyone has been served, we'll drink the juice together, showing our corporate identity in Christ. This is an open table. Everyone who calls out in the name of the Lord, who believes in Jesus and trusts him, for the forgiveness of their sins and their salvation. So if that's where you're at today, feel free to partake of the elements.
tragedies and sorrows. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who is indeed the bread of life that truly satisfies. Help us by the Holy Spirit to feed our souls with your word, that we might find our deepest satisfaction and joy in the life everlasting you provide. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can please pass your cups into the middle aisles. We're going to have a chance to respond now in corporate prayer. And I just invite Neil up now to lead us in prayer in response.